This afternoon we're going to consider the doctrine, what Scripture teaches about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, also as we confess it in the Apostles' Creed. And in connection with that, we will read from Romans 8, the verses 1 through 11. Romans 8, the verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So far, we also turn to Lord's Day 17, which will form the focal point this afternoon. Lord's Day 17 summarizes what Scripture teaches concerning the resurrection of our Lord. Page 531. Here we read as follows, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he could make a share in the righteousness which he had, he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection.
Are we on now? That's better. Sorry about that. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, have you ever tried to assemble a Lego set and then left out a piece? Maybe, maybe it was too complicated to put together. Or maybe you didn't really see the point of that piece and you thought, well, we'll just give it a miss. But usually you run into trouble later on when you do that. Isn't that right? The pieces are there for a reason. And this is also why they have ages printed on the, the side of the box. It'll say this set is for ages 8 and up, for example. And, and the reason for that is because there's not a whole lot of point to giving it to, for example, a toddler. The toddler will be interested in the colors, but won't see the benefit of the Lego itself won't understand what the pieces are for and um, would probably leave some of them out. Sometimes when it comes to theology, we are the same. We don't always see the benefit of a particular theological truth. Sometimes we're like a child which has been given a Lego set which is just a, a little bit too difficult to put together. The Catechism recognizes that and it wants to Help us to understand. It therefore voices a question that that maybe we wouldn't dare to ask, but possibly have, have had in the back of our mind. And that question is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? What does it do for us? And maybe we're not completely sure. Maybe we're a little bit like that child, which has a Lego set and is not quite able to fit all the pieces together. And the catechism is very concerned for us. It wants us to understand this. It wants to make sure that we have all of the pieces, that we know how to put them together. It does not want us to miss out on any part of doctrine. And so the reason for that is because when you have all the pieces, when you are able to fit them together in the right order, then you see how comprehensive salvation really is. It is huge. It is breathtaking when you consider all of Scripture and all of what it teaches and see how it fits together. It is breathtaking to see how comprehensive it really is. There is no part of our lives that is left out. And when you begin to understand these things, when you assemble them in the right order, so to speak, you also start to develop a sense of the love and determination that lies behind it. The love for God and His justice the love to see the honor of Christ maintained, but also love for us. The benefits of the resurrection are there for us. Christ shares these with us. What he did becomes ours. And that is also the basic idea behind this question and the way how we want to approach it this afternoon, that Christ gladly shares the benefits of his resurrection with us. And we'll consider that he shares his righteousness He shares his holiness, and he shares his blessedness. So why does Christ need to share his righteousness with us? Because we have none of our own. Decency? Yes. Kindness? Often. There are very many decent people in this world. There are very many kind and compassionate people in this world. 
There are many people who try to make the world a better place. But none of that is the same as being righteous. To be righteous means to live a life that that aligns with God's moral law. And that means more than just being a good citizen. It means to embody the moral uprightness of the living God himself. And to do this consistently at all times. And that is the one thing that we cannot do. The Canons of Dort 3.4, Article 1, put it this way. It says that man has brought upon himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility and perverseness of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness, and stubbornness in his will and heart, and impurity in all his affections. Now, maybe you think that that's an overly pessimistic view of the matter, but the Canons of Dort are simply echoing Scripture here. What this is telling us is that the totality of human existence and experience since the fall into sin has been tainted by this unrighteousness. This lack of righteousness has corrupted every part of our existence. And that is culpable. That means it is something that God punishes. Now our natural inclination is to think that she'll be right, mate. It's not that bad. Isn't that the classic attitude to these sorts of things but the fact is that it is that bad and it won't be right and we should know that because we had Anzac Day just what was it less than a week ago surely if we ever needed an example of how bent and twisted human beings can become by nature that day should serve to remind us shouldn't it every year we vow never again and yet every year since The last of the great wars ended has been marked by conflict or turmoil somewhere on this globe. There's always unrest or misery somewhere in some country, smoldering fire waiting to burst into flame again. And when you look closely, there's death all around us, isn't there? It seems that not a week goes by that some celebrity from days gone past dies. And um, if you're from the generation that, that grew up in the 80s and and many of us here are, then you would have noticed this, especially through the passing of of all of the great musicians from the last decades. It seems that every few weeks there's some, some rock star or some comedian or some other famous person from years gone by who who dies, they perish, and their works perish with them. All grow old, all die, there's death all around us. Even creation itself is in bondage to corruption. Everything around us is subject to decay. Everything that does not belong to Christ, everything that is not counted as being in Christ is subject to God's dreadful judgment over this world. In all of that darkness, the resurrection of Christ stands out like a floodlight on a dark night. This phrase, by his death, in the catechism, reminds us why he died. He was born as a true descendant of Adam, and so death came to him, as it does to us all. So this phrase reminds us of his humanity when it refers to to by his death, the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death reminds us of his humanity. He was born as a, a true descendant of Adam. He really was One of us, he really died like us, but he was a truly righteous man, unlike any of us. 
Why then did he die? So that he could make a share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. And now look at that word share. Isn't that a beautiful word to share? No one made him do this. No one forced him to do this. This is something he wanted to do. He wanted us to partake in his righteousness. He wanted to take the righteousness that was his and make it completely ours. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, Christ did this joyfully. He shared his righteousness joyfully. His joy was, first of all, to restore God's honor, first to see God's righteousness upheld, but in that, redeeming us so that we too could share in that righteousness, so that we too could be righteous in the eyes of God. And all of this is reflected in the baptism that we just witnessed. Baptism is, first of all, a confession that we and our children and all that we stand for and all that we live for deserve death. The waters represent God's final judgment over sin. But they also represent to us that Christ underwent that judgment instead of us. And so we are baptized in his name. He was the only person who did not deserve to die. And because he did not deserve to die, he was resurrected from the dead. And our reading from Romans 8 reflects these truths as well. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here the word law is used in the sense of a rule or a force. We are subject to the law of sin and of death. The rule of sin A force like gravity bending us to its will, drawing us into its orbit more and more tightly into the spiral of death. But then Christ comes, and in him we are under a different dominion, a different power, a different rule, a different law, so to speak, the law of the spirit of life. A new law has come. A new power has come, and the spirit of life works faith in us, and he transforms us. He transfers us from the darkness of sin and death and destruction and brings us into the realm of life. In Christ, we are set free from the law of sin and death. And God alone can do this. Verse 3 tells us that it was God. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And here, law refers to God's moral law. God's law in the sense of his moral law, his, his rule, his decree, his commandment. And the law itself is not the problem. The law weakened by the flesh, the law here is not the problem. The law is just the expression of the righteousness of God himself, but the problem is that the law was weakened by the flesh. Flesh, flesh is everything about us that is sinful, everything that is this worldly, Everything that is turned away from God and the power of sin to work unrighteousness in us is stronger than the power of the law, God's law, to work righteousness. The law can tell us what to do. It can show us how to do it. It can lay it all out before us, but in the end, it cannot make us do it. That's why God had to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, if you read carefully, and that's hard to do, of course, if, you're, if you haven't looked at this passage for a while, and um, you maybe have a lot of things on your mind, and, and Paul's reasoning here is intricate. But if you, if you follow along, he is playing with the meaning of the word flesh here in, um, in verse 3. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. He's playing with the different meanings of the word flesh. In the first reference, flesh, weakened by the flesh then, is, is flesh in the sense of all that is sinful and this worldly about us. But in the second use of the word flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, he's referring to Christ's humanity. He uses the word likeness here in order to make it very clear that Christ himself was sinless. But he wants to make it as clear as he can to us that Christ really did come. A man who, a real man who really suffered, and in his suffering, God condemned sin in the flesh, in his flesh. In his flesh. That word flesh is a very this worldly word. Right? This is the flesh that we all share, the, the, the flesh of going through, through life, of being embodied. And it was in that, in that flesh that God condemned sin in Christ. And the results of this are astounding. Verse 4 says that God did this in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Imagine that. The righteous requirements of the law are positively that he would live a sinless life. Negatively, that he fulfilled the law's punishment over our sins. So when we're joined to him in faith, then we have both. We have all of our sins atoned for, and we have all of his benefits. All of the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. You could also put it in the words of Lord's Day 29 of the Catechism. All his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had personally suffered and paid for our sins. The theological word for this is imputation, and it means to credit. We are credited. God credits us with all of his suffering and obedience as certainly as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. So is this not a mar marvelous thing if you think about it? The righteous requirements of the law are truly fulfilled in us. You have received these as surely as if you had fulfilled all of it yourself. It is really yours, and the resurrection guarantees it. After all, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. So the resurrection ties it together. And that righteousness that he has obtained and also shows in our life, which is what verse 4 also hints at when it goes on to say, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, and then it says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's not, not suggesting that, that, that you earn this righteousness somehow by walking according to the Spirit, but it is saying that people who, who have this righteousness, they live accordingly. They walk according to the Spirit. 
But the question is, how do you do that? And we'll pay attention to, to that in our second point, because the gospel is not just that Christ shared his righteousness, but also that he shares his holiness. The Catechism goes on to say that by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. And that life, uh, new life doesn't refer to, to our life after death. This is referring to life now. By his power, we too are raised up to a new life. In other words, this refers to our sanctification. It shows us how God makes us holy in this life. To be raised up to a new life. This is the process by which God separates us from the devil, the world, and our own flesh, our own sinful nature. Our passage reminds us in verse 5 that those who live according to the flesh, according to the flesh, set the minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set your mind on something is to be totally oriented to it, to be totally absorbed by it. And the word mind here implies every part of us that thinks or feels something, our will, our reason, our understanding, our desires. And when you live according to the flesh, ultimately you live only for yourself, and your life orbits around yourself, and the things that you want, you, you, you want something and you go for it. People who live according to the flesh live for power, they live for influence over others, they live for money, they live for pleasure. And even when they do things for others, it is still ultimately motivated by themselves, by their own desires, by their own will. And when you're motivated by your own will, then you cannot live for the will of God. In fact, you are opposed to it. That's what verse 8 says. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's true of all people, whether they're Christians or not. It doesn't matter if you're a regular churchgoer or if you send your children to a Christian school or if you voted liberal instead of labor in the last election or if you're socially conservative. Ultimately, it comes down to your motivations. If you're not motivated by the spirit of God living in you, it's because you're still in the flesh. If you're still in the flesh, it means that you're unconverted. If you're unconverted, you're still an unbeliever. And then, says verse 8, you cannot please God. But those who live according to the Spirit do please God. Why? Because the law has been already fulfilled in them through Christ. The power of sin has been broken in them. They belong to him, and that is why God is pleased with them. And then they live as his people. And then they're part of his kingdom. And then the new realm that is broken into this world with the coming of Christ is a realm to which they belong. And they're ruled by his spirit. So not only is God pleased with them because they belong to him, but he's also then pleased with the fruit of faith that grows in their lives. So if you think about all of this, if the resurrection is real, then Christ really is Lord. If you overcame death, which is a punishment of sin, if the power that raised him really is at work in Christians as well, then it makes sense, total sense, that he would overcome sin in their lives as well. And that's why the catechism uses a present tense here. 
It says, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life, not will be raised up. He's not talking about the future here. That doesn't come until the third part. He's talking about now. He's talking about empowering us to fight sin in our lives. The very same power. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Think about this in the simplest terms. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us to help us overcome sin in our life. And if that power could raise Christ himself from the dead, do you not think that it could also break the power of sin in our lives? Do you not think that this would empower us? That's touched on in verse 10 here as well. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, the the righteousness of God, which condemned our sin in Christ, enables us to share in his life. See, this is a question of God's righteousness. He doesn't leave us to figure this stuff out on our own. He's righteous. He's consistent with himself. If he has given you his righteousness, he will also give you sanctification. If Christ gladly shares his righteousness with us, then he gladly shares his holiness. His life is ours now. But you might wonder, how does that work? How do you become unable to overcome sin in your life? How do you do this? How do you break with the corrupting power of everything around us? Well, ultimately, it's, it's hard to explain. The Lord Jesus once said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This, this power of regeneration working itself out in, in our sanctification and the choices that we make, sometimes we don't even know why we do the things that we do. But God shapes our priorities. He shapes our will. He shapes our inclinations. He shapes our attitudes. And he actually enables us to break with sin. And the form for baptism refers to this promise indirectly as well. It says, If we sometimes through weakness fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy nor continue in sin. What do you do when you do fall into sin? You don't continue in it. But how do you break with it? You look to God's mercy. You look to what he promises to you. In Christ, you look to your baptism. He's promised you cleansing, and that is a promise he will keep. That's what the water shows. He has promised us that the power that that raised Christ from the dead will also raise you to a new life. In other words, every time that you turn to him in faith, no matter how many times, every time you turn to him in faith, you will be empowered to break with your sin. But you have to keep your eyes on him. You have to look to him. You have to turn to him. You need to believe in his resurrection. You cannot do this any other way. If you try to act on your own, and we do this sometimes, we say, well, now that I have this righteousness, I'll take it from here. We try to live out of good intentions. You will not stand if you do that. The devil 
the world, and your own flesh, your own sinful nature, are your three sworn enemies that ultimately have it in for you. They're too powerful for you. That's why you have to keep on looking to Christ. This is not weakness. Faith is not for people that are weak. This is strength. This is where all true strength comes from in life. It's through faith. It is to look to Christ in faith, to remain in him. If you remain in him, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit far beyond what you expected. And the thing about fruit is it takes time. Slow going sometimes. Some types of fruit grow faster than others. Some years maybe you see more, other years you see less. But the fruit is there and it will continue to grow far beyond what you expected. In fact, you will be renewed in his image and ultimately share in his blessedness. Christ gladly shares all the benefits of his resurrection with us. He shares his righteousness, he shares his holiness, and he will also share his blessedness. See, the Catechism says, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. What is a pledge? A pledge is a a promise. It can be something physical, it can also be a promise of something that is yet to come. And so in this case, his physical resurrection is a promise that we too will one day be raised from the dead. And if you think about this consistently, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If he's a spirit of life, if he dwells in you, If he sanctifies you, how can he not resurrect you? Because he displaces all that is dark and twisted. He displaces the very flesh and the body of sin, and would he then not also finally displace its consequences? In fact, the resurrection has to follow our resurrection. If he were not to raise you, his work would be incomplete. Then you would still be permanently subject to one of the consequences of sin, But if death really is the the punishment for sin, if sin has been taken away completely in the resurrection, then so is death, and then of course you'll be raised. You can be as sure of that as you are of the fact that you were sitting in this auditorium this very moment. All of these things are connected together. If Christ gladly shares all the benefits of his resurrection with us, how can that not include our resurrection? Of course it does. But verse 11 does contain a warning then, reading between the lines. Again, if the spirit of him who raises Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, if the spirit does not dwell in you, if the spirit of him who, does not, who, who raised Jesus from the dead does not dwell in you, then you will not be raised either. Not to eternal blessedness. You will instead be raised to eternal destruction. If you're not renewed by him in this life, you will not share in blessedness in the life to come. You cannot embrace all that which belongs to the devil, the world, 
and your own flesh. You cannot embrace that. You cannot hold it close to you. You cannot hold on to that which comes from death and then at the end suddenly expect to receive life. Because anything that stands outside of Christ will one day be destroyed. And that is also promised to us in the waters of baptism. But to those who believe, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Why glorious? Because we will live in the presence of God forever. We will live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and to glorify him. That's what the promise of eternal blessedness is. To be blessed ultimately in Scripture is to enjoy the favor of God. To have, so to speak, his smile on you. You know, when... When you walk into a room and there's someone there that you love and they see you and they light up when they see you. They love you. That's a little bit what it's like. Blessedness. God's favor. God's love towards us. To be blessed is to enjoy the favor of God. And so eternal blessedness means that you will enjoy the favor of God forever with nothing standing in between. It means to live in the presence of God forever. It means to be conscious of God's approval forever. It means that you will enjoy eternal life forever without any of the things that hold you back now holding you back then from that joy. How rich we are, brothers and sisters, How rich we are that Christ gladly shares all the benefits of his resurrection with us. He shares his righteousness. He shares his holiness. He shares his blessedness. Already all of that promised to us now through his resurrection, confirmed to us in the waters of baptism, one day to be received in fullness. So how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? More than we can imagine. We may not always understand it now and our children don't understand it at all but that does not make the promise any less true the promise is true it is there and the Lord is patient with us and through this life through all of the things that we encounter he works in us a growing awareness and he continues to be patient with us when it takes us time And so may our prayer together as congregation be that we grow in our understanding until one day we fully experience all of his benefits and all of their power. May that day come soon. Amen.